Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the EdTech podcast, where our mission is to improve the dialogue between ed and tech for better innovation and impact. Before we kick off, a quick message this week to all of our listeners around the world. I'm mindful that many of the smartest developers, teams, colleagues and friends of the edtech world are in Ukraine. So I just wanted to say that we see you, hear you and support you at the moment uh, and all of those people that are working with their teammates to deal with what is a very difficult situation. Um, So best of luck to all of you. Um, Some suggested links for ways to help will be put in the show notes and we will keep aiming here at the EdTech podcast to surface those positive changes in the world and to support individuals who are striving to create them. So a shout out to all of those people uh, and that will include many people listening in, whether you're an ed or tech uh, and wherever you are in the world, keep keep going and keep striving. Um, you can also hang on at the end of this week's episode to hear more about the Global Young Journalists Awards. In other news, my apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. As usual, half term here in the UK has slowed things down a bit. The good news is I've chosen a recording to kick off this term, which might help support your digital vision and get back to the essential questions you should be asking if you're involved in school leadership, teaching and learning or governance and how edtech or uh, technology or uh, digital strategy or vision can uh, influence and uh, underpin that. That's because this episode of the EdTech podcast is with Al Kingsley. And uh, here's a bit of an intro to Al for any of you who aren't already acquainted. Al is CEO of NetSupport, who you might know. Um, He has almost 30 years experience in all aspects of educational technology. Uh, He has many roles outside of NetSupport as well. These include the chair of a multi-academy trust, chair of an alternative provision academy, chair of the area's uh, governor's leadership group and county send board. He also sits on the regional school's commissioner's advisory board, supporting academies across the southeast of the UK. And he's a firm believer in lifelong learning, so chairs his combined authorities employment and skills board, as well as being a very active apprenticeship ambassador for the region. Finally, Al was elected chair of the BISA's EdTech Special Interest Group and is an ambassador for Digital Poverty Alliance, plus a council member for the Foundation for Education Development. Al has also authored My Secret EdTech Diary and co-authored the Digital Strategy Guide for Schools, as well as writing for a broad range of educational titles alongside regularly speaking at conferences internationally. So in this episode, we cover practical considerations for funding and implementing edtech and how to create change through informal and formal channels. I hope very much that you find this a useful reminder for what things to look out for and how to keep light on your feet, but also steadied by a proper idea of a North Star for edtech if you're the one tasked with procuring, developing and implementing it. Okay, here we go. this discussion today I'd love to focus on my secret edtech diary book covers everything from the history of edtech to um, how to embed continual professional development in educational technology and how to use it effectively uh, digital strategy and what edtech means for the future of work and our young people 
Um, as an aside, Al describes himself as an edu sponge. He was born on a business trip to Dublin uh, and thinks the biggest myth in edtech is that the more you have, the better you are. And he says that with intention and implementation, these are more important than volume. Al, again, brilliant to have you here and to learn. And um, yeah, I've had a real fun delving into your book. And uh, it's it's kind of a great way to take stock of the situation and, and everything that's that we've kind of been through over the last few years as well. Thank you. Um, so let's get straight into it. So First up, um, I think it might make, make sense to share with our listeners some of the historical perspectives of EdTech that you've uncovered. Um, so we recently looked on the podcast at the GI Bill um, as an example of sort of bold policy to change the dial. And I wondered if you could talk us through some of the past examples of innovation in education that you uncovered as part of your research into my secret EdTech diary. I'm happy to. I think the first thing is, um, I, I think what I tried to do was was bring the edtech conversation to be something that everybody could engage in. I, mm-hmm. I really um, think it's frustrating sometimes when people who don't have a technology role kind of feel that edtech is somehow a mystery or too technical to engage in. And actually much of the historical edtech, which, you know, I'm sure many will have encountered at different times, is really more lessons about the timing and how things were delivered. So, so often, if we if we roll the clock back, we often think of the delivery of technology and big projects. And, and I referenced some really big ones that are recognised internationally, whether it was Los Angeles in, in, um, International Schools District. They uh, um, had a project where they acquired literally thousands of iPads to deploy across their teaching and learning. And they had all sorts of challenges with that deployment. And ultimately, it, it really receives quite a lot of negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when we look at the deployment of technology, the challenge we always face is, was, was the failure that the technology wasn't the right fit? Or was the failure actually about the implementation? Was it clear what we were trying to achieve, why we were trying to achieve it? And more importantly, and, and the reason I like to look back is because I think we, we encounter the exact same problems, sometimes on a much smaller scale, within our schools and, and, and multi-academy trusts now. And that question is always, does anybody actually understand what the technology's purpose is and how to leverage the most from it? Or are we simply saying, this is a trust-wide decision, this technology is going to be in your classroom, now wave that magic wand and make it have impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can see it across all schools. And, and I kind of look back to perhaps some of the times where technology, for want of a better term, was forced upon us. You know, we have all these kind of announcements of where there's new technology, you know, Google were doing it with Google glasses and this fantastic new technology that meant with your headset, you could augment and show information. And their best example of why schools needed to invest in it was so that senior leadership could monitor from the headset and do observations of teacher practice. I mean, I can't think of anything more horrendous personally. <laughs> um, but the whole point really was that often it's, we, we see it when we make a decision, whether it's at, at our course, you know, student information systems or whether we use it as part of our teaching and learning tools, often schools and trusts will make a decision about a technology, implement it and install it. And the start of the academic year, we, we, we kind of kick things off with a two or three hour bit of inset where we get familiarization. And then it's really knock yourself out. Uh, and often all these paths lead back to the same thing, which is that the technology is not the key. The technology is the facilitator. The key is actually what we wrap around it in terms of actually making sure that people are confident to use it, it becomes embedded, and ultimately we can measure impact. And I think that historically has has been the lesson more often than not. Of course, there are occasions where 
the shiny, shiny lure of a new technology, um, people invest in and find that it's not the right path. But more often than not, it's it's not the tech, it's the way that it's being implemented and used that's the, the real challenge. It's, it's really interesting. You mentioned the Los Angeles Unified School District and, and their sort of one-to-one project and then Amplify, which was Rupert Murdoch's background company behind that initiative, and then a couple of others, perhaps looking here to the UK, some of the narrative around whiteboards and building for schools and that kind of thing. And and I was sort of thinking about what all the all of these projects had in common and how we could learn to avoid missteps like these in the new era of ed tech, if we put it like that. I think it's possibly sometimes, Sophie, that when something is used and, and maybe in a, in a local context, it makes sense. We're very quick to say that's that's the policy that we'll take forever and a day. So I always use the whiteboard example, and that's one that's been debated to death over the years in many regards. But, you know, I, I know with, with my role as a, as a MAT chair, we, we're building new schools as part of the free school program, and there's an initial fund to kit out classrooms. And for many schools, that mindset was, well, a standard classroom involves, you know, alongside the tables and chairs and the, the display boards was whiteboard front of the class and a computer to, to link up to it and project to. And, and rarely was that challenge about how effectively was that whiteboard used. And then sometimes you hear others saying, well, whiteboards or you know, interactive displays, they're not worth it. Let's just put a TV there. And, mm-hmm. and the simple answer is, why are we assuming this is one size fits all? Yeah. Often the, the, the barrier to using interactive whiteboards is not the technology. It's the fact that the staff don't have confidence with all the supporting tools and apps to leverage the most from it. In other settings, a TV screen is far better because we want to project from our tablet and actually show students the interactive apps that we're using on our resources. There's also just linked to that, as, as you touched on it with the UK context, you know, there's, there's a kind of a narrative which is more government and political, which is, you know, building schools for the future is a great example. We get this funding to build a lovely, shiny new school, and we get some funding to go with it to put this amazing technology in place. But then four years later, five years later, when we start to look at refreshing that technology, Mm. there's no continuity of funding that allows that huge influx of tech to be replaced. So we see our classes of 30 tablets suddenly becoming 29, 28, 27. And when it's time for refresh, the school can only refresh a small proportion. And that was a challenge with BSF. But, you know, let's learn our lessons. We've just had an influx of technology into our schools, courtesy of the pandemic coming from the government. And we're saying, let's make sure all our learners are more digitally literate and we're utilising this technology. Good, you know, it's public money. Let's get the most out of it in our classrooms. What are we going to do in four years' time when all that technology needs renewal? Is there another pot of money coming to cover that outside of the normal school's budget? Or are we going to see, again, that that curve where suddenly we see a reduction and a reduction and a reduction in available technology in the classroom? I think we've, we've often seen on, on a smaller scale schools that have spent some hard-earned budget and they're using it to, mm. to acquire some tablets, but don't necessarily look at the infrastructure potential. So actually, we're going to have to invest on more access points to get the most of it around our school. Or as you say, that, that big element of, well, what are we putting aside for the professional development? Is it the, the tablet in the hand that will unlock the teaching and learning experience? Or will it be the selection of resources and how they're deployed by the teacher and to the students that will make the difference? And if it's the latter, how are we going to make sure that they've got those skills? And, and it often gets forgotten. But what about the IT team? We can't have a mindset that um, whenever we choose apps from a pedagogy point of view, if there's a problem, the IT team are automatically the experts because it's tech. But often that isn't the case. And mm. so that training should involve the, all those staff, whether they're using it or supporting it, to really understand how to leverage and support the most from it. 
And I'm, I'm kind of interested in your perspective as well. So, um, you know, something I've noticed on the podcast over the sort of six years that I've been running it is perhaps in the beginning, there was this more of a fever around around the kind of amplify end of things. So quite often venture capital backed, you know, out of California, um, probably lacking any real um, sort of pedagogical insight on their board. Um and sort of ha- has a has a touch of the sort of Silicon Valley savior complex of you know we're gonna we're gonna bowl in and we're gonna sort out teaching and learning <laughs> around the world. Um, but yeah. but the the conversation does seem to have got more sophisticated over the times that I've been running the podcast, and I think people now are a little bit more attuned to it's not about optimizing or sort of personalizing everything down to an individual element and there is a a greater hunger for sort of social learning and you know maybe slow and steady rather than uh yeah just just kind of trying to throw technology at it i think you're absolutely right i mean i think whenever we you know there's, there's two kind of mindsets when it comes to technology you know one is we'll create something and then we'll convince the audience why they need it mm-hmm. and that really has long-term benefit and impact not not least in within the education space and then there's the other which is something that I talk about a lot, which is about how the, the market and the mindset has moved to that co-production model, mm-hmm. which is actually you need to understand the setting, the environment, and what the challenges are to deliver effective solutions. And, and that's changed now in recent years, and, and absolutely in some of the narratives and conversations you've had, that's reflected in the sense that that one, we're making sure that we're, we're picking tools that are right for the setting. So that mindset of who's got the most bells and whistles on the product isn't necessarily a measure of which is the best product. And then the second behind it is um, that kind of evidence focus now. So if it's pedagogical, where's the backing evidence, the research that shows that what you're offering will have a positive impact in in terms of outcomes? Um, or, or that kind of where are the case studies, the kind of the, the evidence behind it in terms of other people who are using the technology who can support it. And I think that's a catalyst of the fact there's so many choices out there. Um, I think it's a positive. You talk about the kind of some of the early venture cap. Mm. That was a mindset to create a market, create a niche, and ultimately it's about making money. I think that mindset's flipped now. There's an awful lot of investment in edtech, and in many cases that's investing in businesses for the long haul. There are still some looking for the short-term gain, but I think you can often take a a litmus test from the the financial markets Mm -hmm. to recognize there is an expectation, and they're probably right, that in the coming years, there is going to be greater focus and greater opportunity in terms of the choice of educational technology products. And that's a great opportunity for schools, but it also comes with that double-edged sword, which is if there's two, three times as many solutions to pick from, yeah. we're going to have to get more savvy in terms of how we pick the right solution. Because we haven't got the time to try everything and we haven't got the funds to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But we want to balance that with the fact something we learned very much over the last 18 months is where teachers are empowered to take risks. And I use the take risks in the kind of controlled sense of go out, try new things, because we had to in many cases. That was the catalyst to continue the teaching and learning experience. Actually, that is the catalyst for innovation, actually breaking out of the norm of what we always do to see if there are other things that might add value. Yeah. And and you talk about in the book sort of... um having an appetite for seeing new innovation come through so I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast be familiar with the sort of incumbent brands that are out there but Mm. you you know you're you're quite passionate about 
creating a space for new innovation um, and you had your check it out show which allowed some of this surfacing of innovation and discoverability of new things that are being put out there um i, I just wonder like if... minds there sophie i mean i think <laughs> it's the same kind of thing that you're doing with your podcast isn't it yeah i mean what i liked about your book that i think when i set up the podcast the idea was that you know um people at the time were quite sort of um entrenched in their camps that either you know there was ed tech which was about uh, sort of commercial companies making money, um, not understanding the, the 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 mindset or the situation of teachers or um, school leaders, and then there were um, schools which were you know completely oblivious to what what could potentially help them and um, were not up for doing any pilots or, <laughs> and yeah. actually what I realised is look you know you're both in this for the same reasons no one's if someone wants to make a quick buck they're not going to go into ed tech um so you know there was a there was a chance to bring those conversations together and and co-create like you said so that was the kind of and I think you you talk about that in the in the book quite a lot so but yeah I just wondered from from those conversations that you did and from putting the check it out there show out there um were there any you know particular products or services that sort of stuck with you or teams where you thought actually that's really cool I think I always try and kind of kind of be independent of all the different brands. I, mm-hmm. I, I think one thing I try and I try and always share, and, and I appreciate you kind of picking that up from the book, which is it's very easy to get entrenched on a couple of the big international brand names that offer our solutions, the, the platforms for for what we do within our schools, and and increasingly um, we need to think of edtech in our schools as being something a little bit broader than just the classroom because it mm-hmm. actually encompasses the whole of the school setting. But what we've seen, and I think where the real value lies in edtech, and certainly thinking in the UK context, is that actually we've got a massive ecosystem of smaller businesses creating solutions, that co-production that you referred to. And many are teachers and educators who have come mm-hmm. from their, their classroom practice, identified challenges, come up with new opportunities. And I think for us, that's that bit about bringing the sector and, and the customer together in that we actually need to develop and foster that because that's largely where all the, the real innovation and insights come from. So, so what I discovered and the, and the intent of doing the Check It Out show was very much, well, well, we'll do an episode or two and it will substitute not having some of the face-to-face events that were available, was really just the breadth and diversity of solutions that are out there. And, and under solutions, we can include services as well. So we kind of think of EdTech and our natural persuasion is to jump understandably into the teaching and learning sense and we're providing curriculum resources for x y or z but actually the breadth whether it's the communication platforms or the support for staff and student well-being or the different um, tools that can help level the playing field in terms of you know equity of access and supporting our SCND learners there's such a diversity of solutions that I think what we really need to be really aware of is not trying to put things into one or two boxes and I do worry, and I, I share it in the book, where we, we've all been um, kind of following a narrative courtesy of a few big vendors that the cloud is the panacea to everything. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that the cl- if you want to be a solution provider in the cloud, you're paying somebody to be there and you're paying somebody whenever your technology is used. Um, and that can sometimes be a barrier for some of the smaller adopters to come into the market. Mm-hmm. And we need to be kind of mindful that actually one size, again, doesn't fit all. Sometimes solutions right there on the desktop, local in the school, make perfect sense. And other times up there in the cloud is absolutely the way to go. So 
really in the book, and I'm, you know, I really appreciate the time you've spent having a look through there. As much as anything, I try and pose the questions to challenge, to ask, rather than the solutions, because I do think every school and every setting is different in terms of their particular needs. One of those examples that I really loved was a staff survey that you put together. So, you know, some some questions that you could consider sending your school team to really evaluate their competencies around digital. It's interesting. I know that um, you've got great experience in the sort of governor role. And um, I've recently just joined as a school governor. And I think something that, you know, there's there's the school governor role is obviously strategic. It's not about getting into the operational. I'm quite interested in how do you how do you change the dial when you when you have all these structures, and you know you're someone that's thinking forward, but you're you're sort of sat at the table in these um, institutions and pow- and basically seats of power, which is where you need to be to make make change. But also, how do you allow that kind of porous exchange of information and moving things forward you know there's so many schools and teachers and educators and people involved in education who'd be listening in so thinking I'm just one cog in this thing and I always feel like I'm it's a sort of you know that task of of, of pushing something uphill and you know how how do you kind of go beyond that and and obviously there's been huge changes in the last two years but I think you've got a really interesting position because you're in one sense you're in those formal positions but in another sense you are someone who is very much aware of you know what what is possible and what still is to be done i think it's a really interesting question i think the first very simple answer is um what you don't do even though you understand the tech landscape and the options is tell people this is what you need mm-hmm. what you do is empower people to figure out for themselves what they need and where appropriate give them a steer and access to the resources so what I try and do when I'm when I'm working with schools, particularly when I'm working with mats and my own mat, is say, look, we want to build um, an approach where we can identify where there are challenges and how we can move our digital vision. And maybe if you start with a vision rather than a strategy, that's not a bad start to pretend. You know, and and whatever your role is sitting around that governance table within a school or a trustee role in a mat, you know, the the key questions are always, what do we want to do? Why do we want to do it? And how are we going to measure it? Those are the kind of the starters for 10. And you don't need any background to ask those questions. In fact, sometimes the more distance you've got, the easier it is to ask those kind of questions as devil's advocate. Once you understand what we're trying to achieve, the biggest the biggest failure in many schools, I believe, and, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing, so I'm sure there are plenty of been successful, is this concept that one person can do it all and one person has all the answers. And we have to remember, based on the, the need to, to operate and function in schools, sometimes SLT will take a grip and say, we're going to handle this because it's quite significant. And we have to remember when it comes to technology and technology adoption, you know, as you rightly point out, the landscape is ever moving. So when we think about what do we need to do and what's going to have the most impact, actually, those of us who are sitting from an SLT perspective are not necessarily the people with the most current experience and understanding of what really does or doesn't resonate in the classroom, what does or doesn't save time, what doesn't get greater engagement from our students. So the first lesson of all is you're going to have to delegate to those people on the coalface to have a look and get their feedback about what's going to support teaching and learning with their learners and students. And then you're going to have to, you know, I I try and share it as a Venn diagram, but then you're going to have to bring the other stakeholders around the table. This bit about we're not going to drag people along on a 
the journey of change, but we're actually going to empower people to want to be part of the journey. So the IT team aren't going to find out afterwards what our plans are. They're going to be part of that narrative. So there are no nasty surprises with scale. We're going to make sure that we don't think, forget about privacy and so on. We're going to make sure that accessibility and our SEN children where, where possible are included. So we're doing technology that's going to be as accessible to all. We'll keep the governance voice. We're going to make sure that by those surveys you referenced, we're going to understand where our teaching cohort are right now in terms of their confidence with tech and build that into part of our digital vision. Um, and then the finance team, as I always say, don't dictate the journey. They simply dictate the speed of the journey. I get really frustrated when I hear in schools that the, the catalyst for, the, for a bit of ed tech was you've got X grand unspent in the budget. What do you want to spend it on? And that's just such a wrong way of doing things because you've never got an eye on that ultimate prize. And what that often means is we buy tech and then two years later, as part of a broader vision, it goes in the bin because it wasn't suitable to flex where we needed to go. So it is about bringing stakeholders together. And of course, one of the side effects of bringing lots of stakeholders together is you can break your vision down into different pillars of your strategy and you can delegate. So suddenly it's now on the shoulders of many, not just one, to bring those kind of key points together. Yes, at some point, we've got to align it with the school development plan or the trust strategic objectives, what are our priorities, um, to make sure that we don't try and do everything at the same time. But you start to bring together something that everybody gets what we're trying to achieve. Everybody feels they've had a voice and an input into it. Can't guarantee that everyone will get what they think or agree with. But it starts to then be more of a whole school narrative. And we don't have to be in education. We can take the same conversation in business. And if you want to move staff forward, it's much better that they feel that they're part of the conversation, part of the journey, rather than just being dragged along, kicking and screaming. Excellent. Um, and if, if I understand correctly, you may have a new book coming out, same approach, but for governors. I am working on my <laughs> secret governance diary. Again, um, my secret's not much of a secret, but, um, <laughs> but for those who have picked up on the title naming, uh, there's, a, there's a nod to Adrian Mole somewhere in the title. Um, but um, yeah, it's something I'm working on and it's something that I'm quite passionate about. Again, you know, I think there's a parallel here, but often there's a bit of a mystery about governance. Mm -hmm. Certainly if you've not come from an education space, you've got to learn the lingo and all the different acronyms and terminology. But the reality is that role of critical friend, the asking, the whys, the hows, and but also the how are you's and what are we doing and how are we supporting our staff and, and what's our plan and strategy. That's actually something that I had down. So uh, with your different hats on, what is your sense of, you know, whether we will really capture all the benefits and the the, the, the kind of momentum that happened in the last two years um, in obviously what, what was an awful time, but in terms of equipping schools and, and um, empowering educators, as you say, with, with new approaches. Um, is there a sense of now suddenly the um, the focus is on catching up and on imminent Ofsted? I, th I think in schools, the narrative is quite different to the national TV. Uh, the narrative mm. nationally is, you know, COVID cases are dropping. We're moving away from that. We're now into that recovery phase. I think for many of the schools that, that I'm supporting or involved in, we're still dealing with significant absence levels, both staff and students, and actually yeah. it's about um, just having the capacity to deliver the, the, the daily offering within the schools. There absolutely is a, a mind, and I try to shift the mind away from, well, you know, offset will be on their way in due course. But actually, most of the schools now, leaders, for the right reasons, the reasons, I guess, why you know they're in, they're in education, has been focusing around 
getting children in the right mindset to learn. I think the idea of trying to focus on catching up if you haven't got children in the right place where they're ready to learn emotionally and that kind of support and putting the effort into some of those more, you know, the experiences, the things that actually um, are, are an important part of the child's learning journey and things they've missed most in the last couple of years, I think is is really, really key. And I, and I think, again, it's not something that you're going to magically fix in a few months. This is something that will take some years for some of the cohort to really rebuild on. Um, when it comes to catch up, and again, I really don't like the term because I think sharing that with children or ref reflecting as something you've lost is never a good starting point. But looking at how technology can support. So maybe one strand might be about, you know, at secondary level, the technology we can use to, to provide additional personalized learning that will help alongside the normal teaching and learning, give children stretch or an opportunity to revisit and rebuild some of the kind of core foundations on a topic. I think the, the technology that most schools have got now, whether they're um, Teamsing or Googling or Zooming, um, has facilitated at primary much better collaboration and communication with families in the broader community. And certainly within families, there's an opportunity to, to develop that being key to a child's learning, particularly for early years in key stage one. And we've got some real gains on that. We've seen the use of technology that's been used for remote parents' evenings being something that schools want to continue to adopt, probably in a blended model during the year. But we've had in many schools a significantly enhanced um, engagement with some of our harder-to-reach families. Perhaps in one sense, it's just more accessible for, for families that are busy working. For others, I think it's actually a nicer way to communicate about your child than, than being in the sports hall with their Here's families sat over your shoulder, but it's also been a big plus for well-being for staff by keeping things on task, on schedule, and not being late nights that they weren't expecting. So I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that one. We have we have um, our parents' evening this evening, and uh, yeah, that is actually remote and um, continues to be so. And I can totally see the um, the benefits there on both sides. Um, but it, it, I was really intrigued by what you said about hard to reach um, families and learners as well, because um, a couple of the chapters of the book are sort of looking at the effects of the pandemic and, you know, sort of taking taking stock of the situation. And, um, you know, EdTech was uh, incredible in terms of, you know, the, the millions and millions of, of, of learners that were able to carry on their learning. But one thing I'm sort of pondering myself is, um, you know, for those children uh, or learners that went missing in action during lockdown for one reason or another, um, and didn't engage with remote learning, whether there was anything that you um, kind of reflected on how we might improve services or connections for, for those students. So, um, you know, strategy around that yeah. lack of engagement. And, it, you know, is there something where for some of those learners when they're in school, you know, it's almost like a captive audience, isn't it? Which doesn't mean that they're in, engaged in a better way. Um no. But yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts and conversations were around that. I'm really glad you touched on that because I think it's so critical. And we can look at that and have that conversation both at national and local and mm. within the school level. So so first and foremost, one of the barriers is, is ultimately about that digital equity. And many schools worked hard to make sure children have access to devices. But connectivity was often a channel challenge. Some schools provided 4G dongles or other aspects. Some, and again, it's built into that longer-term strategy of solutions we, we adopt, um, recognize that some technology, some platforms were more device agnostic and would flex better than others. So a child having a mobile phone at least meant there was some device for connectivity and engagement in teaching and learning. 
I think some of the schools, absolutely, we've learned that some of the reasons why children didn't engage, and obviously there's there's a, there's a, a large range of reasons why, mm. but for some was the fact that we, we assume that our children are digital natives, their technology just is something they can use and interact with, when in reality, just because a child's confident with a bit of technology doesn't mean they're confident in the systems that we've chosen for our school. And some struggled with how to actually access some of our learning platforms and engage yeah. with some of the resources. And that tied back to the, well, if we're surveying our staff about a tech confidence, which will feed into a continuous professional development, schools needed to be doing the same surveys with children and for the younger children with parents about their confidence with the core platforms the school were using, accessibility and availability to technology. Now, that became part of that narrative around, should we be doing everything synchronous or asynchronous? And obviously that kind of blended model that arrived from that and recognizing that some of our learners, when there were two or three children in a household, they couldn't all get the technology at the same time. So having offline um, exemplars and resources they could access at different times was another kind of strand. I mean, moving forward, we've got more devices in our schools, not perhaps enough, but we've certainly got more. There's still the challenge about connectivity. There's still the challenge to recognize that, <clears throat> excuse me, not every lesson and every subject, technology is the is the is the key. In mm. fact, you know, there's plenty of good teaching and learning in classrooms that doesn't involve any technology at all. And long may that continue. But I do think if we start talking about access to personalized learning tools, access to other online resources, curriculum resources, then yes, absolutely, there's more work to be done in us thinking about the tech that we own in schools as not being purely an in-classroom device, but something that we can share and learners can have access to particularly if we think of our, you know, pupil premium children and others where we want to make sure that they've got access to technology um, outside. And that's why I, I think it's essential when we look at tools, we, we don't want tools that are locked down to one and one platform only because I think mm-hmm. that limits choices. And are you doing your meetings? Are they all remote? Well, I, I have a role as um, chair of the trust. So local governing body meetings, trust meetings are predominantly remote. And again, that's convenient for lots of working people. You know, roll the clock back 20 years ago, and and no offence intended, most governing bodies were made up of retired people who wanted to support and share their experience. Based based on the dynamic now of having that skills matrix of different voices around a table, often it's now working people, and sometimes connecting in is, is better than them having to send their apologies. But we are now starting to move to having some of our key meetings in school because I think it's really important that you are constantly on a pulse with what's happening in the school and engaging with staff. You know, number one role I have as chair of the trust, believe it or not, it's not the challenge side, is the how you're doing, providing the support, support for our leadership, because we've got so much focus on well-being for our staff alongside our students, that it's actually very easy for the senior leaders, trust leadership, to kind of not worry or not think about themselves. And that's key to our long-term capacity and ability to support across the trust. So that's something I think is much easier over a cup of coffee, albeit socially distanced, and have those kind of conversations. Yeah, definitely. So um, I've got two two more questions here. Um, So one was, um, I was really intrigued. I think there was a comment in the book around how, um, and this might be contrary to, to how some people imagine things, but uh yeah how how young people's experience of 
use of technology in schools is actually feeding into their expectations of use of technology within the workplace. Um, Mm. And, you know, I've had a few interesting conversations over the years about, you know, people or or certain parts of the education sector try to usually claim, you know, who is the most innovative and and who's letting (laughs) the side down. So, you know, perhaps it's universities saying, well, you know, they, they, they don't equip them well at school and they don't know what they're doing by the time they get to university or further education colleges or in the workplace saying, well, you know, they haven't got the skills that have come through school. So it was like interesting to see that from your perspective, actually, you know, now we, we've got young people that have quite quite an advanced use of um you know an understanding of digital literacy and that expectation is now filtering into um their you know their their perspective in the workplace and perhaps sometimes their disappointment yeah i think there's there's a, there's a number of domino effects that goes on i mean the first is we've got our children who in in recent certainly the recent months in the last couple of years have acquired some additional digital skills and that ability to communicate effectively online. So the first challenge we've got and the domino effect is we don't want to lose that for the Mm. rest of their education journey. Then they're going to go to university potentially, or they're going to go and do a degree apprenticeship, or they're going to go straight into the workplace. And certainly those first couple, they're going to be using tools that enable them to collaborate and communicate online and share resources and information. When they go to the workplace, We've got the right now, which is businesses learning to adapt in the same way as education has mm. to leverage the benefit of technology for operational efficiency. But we've also got that bigger agenda, which is always paramount on schools, which is equipping our learners with the skills they need for the workplace. Well, the workplace has shifted significantly in the last 18 months. The, the context and the concept of the office has moved for many to be a virtual space itself. Mm-hmm. But we're also thinking, well, what are the key skills that children are going to need in the workplace in five years from now, 10 years from now? Such is the pace of change with technology and the way that it's interwoven into businesses. That skills agenda, I think, is going to continue to increase to be paramount. But we don't want our learners leaving school with, with fantastic knowledge, but not the skills to actually access and utilize that knowledge in an, an effective way. So I think it kind of amplifies through that. Businesses need to flex to make sure that they've got an environment that's going to be challenging, stimulating, and more importantly, they can get the most out of their new cohort that arrived from schools in the coming years. And as schools, we've got an obligation to make sure longer term that part of what we're offering our children is not just the social and emotional skills, but also the digital skills to empower them to be most effective in their adult lives. Yeah, I feel quite passionate about that, actually, and 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 um, also passionate that um, it's no longer acceptable for anyone within the sort of education space. I don't believe to sort of say, "Oh, I don't do tech," because no. um, you know, in some ways that's quite flippant and funny. But in other ways, it was like, "Well, you know, that is the world that young people are going into now." Um, not every role, but but technology does have an impact on pretty much every role um, to some extent. So yeah, it just seems like a part of the responsibility of equipping young people, as you say, to, you know, think about our own capabilities in that sense. It doesn't have to mean that we're, we're coders, but just having a a sense of what influences are shaping the world and technology is, is one of the very big ones. So. Yeah. I think it gives us an opportunity when we talk about tech and digital skills and accessing online it also ties in with that broader narrative about we want to equip our, our young people with the skills to be safe online. Mm-hmm. 
conscious of their digital footprint. And the last couple of years, we can put the pandemic to one side, but we've only got to think of the Brexit word and elections in North America to recognise they also have to mm-hmm. the skills to validate information, challenge the source, understand how to research and be informed themselves. And, and I think that's fundamental to, to anybody now who's coming through the education system. That's so important. Absolutely. And yeah, so the final point was just thinking about your new role within BISA um, and uh, sort of chairing up the EdTech chapter of the British Educational Suppliers Association. So um, any any sort of hopes and dreams um, for that role? And yeah, what, what, are, what are you excited about um, taking that forward? Well, I'm certainly excited and it's a great group. It represents a large part of the UK EdTech space. Um, I, I don't have any significant aspirations in the sense that I already think they're a great group and we've been effective and, and working cohesively. Mm. What I do hope is that there's a, a recognition that um, there's a natural persuasion for government to try and always funnel things through a system. If you want to buy technology, go to this one place at government and buy it off a list. If you want something else, go to this place and get your furniture from another list. Well, actually, we've got such a thriving edtech community. What I have always tried to do is empower that narrative and that voice to encourage lots of the small vendors, the new innovators to have an equal voice. But I also think we've all learned, you know, most schools I would sincerely hope would agree with me, that actually we don't want to buy technology as a transaction. This is the cost. This is what you buy. There's your invoice. Goodbye. Actually, the successful vendors are the ones that build relationships with schools that you actually buy into a long-term relationship where you're, as a vendor, learning from the school, getting feedback that helps fine-tune and adopt your, your product. And from a school's perspective, you're not just buying a product, but you're providing that support, that training, and that ongoing relationship. And so in many ways, I suppose what I'm hoping I can do, as long with all the other members of the uh, EdTech Special Interest Group at Visa, is just argue the case for empowering vendors to develop relationships directly with schools, not try and go down this narrow path of if your name's not on the list, you're not coming in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. So, um, yeah, anyone listening in, I definitely encourage you to go and read My Secret EdTech Diary. Um, One of the the best things about it, which is something I love doing on the podcast, is surfacing of amazing sort of research books, um, people that are really, uh, you know, um, instrumental in sharing best practice in the sector. So just a couple of things I jotted down here. One was the um, EEF uh, guidance on uh, remote teaching. So I think even now, like you said at the beginning, um, Al, there's so much information and, um, you know, different people delivering things out there. So sometimes it's it's good just to take stock and remember um, what guidance is out there. Um Absolutely. The other thing was the DFE framework for digital skills capabilities for kids uh, or for for, for, for students. Um, and then, you know, I, I just, yeah, I really hope that we sort of start to see that match for teachers and leaders and governors in a sort of consistent manner. Um, but uh, yeah, and there's um, a whole section at the back where you've got loads and loads of, um, you know, instrumental people in the sector and, um tons of resources so yeah definitely recommend um this is a kind of handbook to pick off the shelf when you're sort of scratching your head with any elements of um you know ed tech but also digital literacy um and uh sort of team development as well 
And do you have any, do you ever remember back to the book writing process? Were there any highs or lows that you'd like to share? Well, I think um, I think possibly when it came to, um, right, I'm going to write a book and be an author. I think there's an actual thing that I'm, I'm sure many share, which is a little bit of, why would anybody want to listen to me? A bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And then there yeah. was the sense that actually I, you know, I wanted to write it like like we're having a chat here, not to try and put the pretense of it being some kind of research document or anything else. So I really focused on accessibility and occasionally a bit of humor in there. But I think, you know, the biggest thing of all is I just think EdTech is not some specialist niche now. It's no different no. for talking about any other strand of teaching and learning and education. And so if it achieves the one thing of making it accessible and readable for any teacher in education, that gives them a few extra questions to ask and an understanding of the thought process, that then for me, that'll be a win. And, and I appreciate you sharing that last point because a lot of it is there's amazing resources. There's amazing people out there sharing that information, hence me being a bit of an edgy sponge. <laughs> so one of the things the book tries to do is, is just be a bit of a time saver, just bring those together and say, listen, if we're on this topic, here's some places to go or people to go listen to. And I think time is that most valuable commodity for all of us, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and I'm a big fan of demystifying anything which, um, you know, we, 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 as humans, we're, we're really fantastic at cloaking these different areas in complicated language and um, ways of making people feel like they're on the outside. And I think anything um, I've tried to do that over the years with, you know, whether it's an in investment for startups or um, you know, anything which if you're new to, of course, it, it sometimes feels intimidating. So um, I'm a big fan of um, using accessible language and, um, you know, just just opening that up to people because, uh, you know, the, the, the more diverse people that get involved, um, the more it becomes, like you say, a mainstream endeavour and, um, you know, not the not the responsibility of one, but actually shared among the whole team. So I think Absolutely. it's fantastic um you know vision for the book and um yeah thanks so much for coming on now and uh look forward to sharing this my pleasure thank you so much for letting me come and have the conversation and keep up the amazing work you've got such a such a strong podcast with so much content big respect to you sophie yeah oh, thanks very much Al. take care That's all for this week's EdTech podcast. Don't forget to rate and review and stay subscribed for upcoming episodes from the European EdTech Alliance. What else? The Global Young Journalists Awards that I mentioned. So the competition is open to students aged 18 and under and will make 10 awards as listed below. So those include things like uh, Environment Journalist of the Year, um, Race and Gender Journalist of the Year, Sports Journalist of the Year, Political Journalist of the Year, Interview of the Year, etc, etc. Um, each category is open to work in any medium. That's quite cool. And the deadline is the end of April this year. And the awards are run by The Day, which is a daily online news title for schools and colleges. And they already have 1,300 subscribing member schools. And they're growing apparently at 20% per year. So that's pretty cool. With an average daily readership of 378,000, which I think they uh, claim sort of uh, challenges some of the uh, tabloid circulation numbers. So the aim of the awards is to uh, light a spark in thousands of young people and inspire a new generation of great reporters, photographers and editors. 
So if that sounds like someone you know, a young person that might be interested in that, then do go and check out the link, which we'll again um, include it in the show notes. Um, coming up on the podcast, we've got uh, episodes on female edtech entrepreneurship. We will also be recording a live episode uh, at BET on the importance of skills and thinking about that within the school age context um, and some other things in the pipeline. So subscribe, share, listen and comment as always and uh, take care everyone. It's uh, There's a lot going on out there so uh, you know take care we love having you as our listeners and uh, see you soon bye bye